Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 73 for Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. We have talked a lot on this show about gender and sexual orientation and representation, and today we are going to continue that conversation with a guest whom I met at GamerX East just last month in New York City, that being Wally S. Hello, Wally. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Excellent. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. So you are a writer, a game dev, an artist. You do a little bit of everything in games. How long have you been doing this? I kind of first started really, you know, taking it seriously as something that I could do, I would say a year and a half ago, you know, the beginning of 2016, though I had, you know, dabbled in some game stuff for a little bit before that. And, you know, of course, I've been playing games my whole life. So was there a turning point where a light bulb went on and you thought I can do this? Um, I would say probably when I participated in Global Game Jam 2016, and that was really like a big experience for me learning that I could you know, be a part in this and that this was like a feasible thing that I could do and it, I wasn't like just pretending. We've talked a little bit about game jams on this show. What was the theme for your game jam? I'm trying to remember. Um, I think it was Ritual that year. So you and your team made a game that somehow represented the theme of ritual? Yes, we made a game about sorting through donations at a library. And we figured that there is, you know, a, t- a type of ritual in going through all these submissions methodically one by one. Oh, that's great. I'm a huge fan of libraries and the challenge that they face, not only with funding, of course, but to determine what books to keep and which ones to weed out can be very challenging. That sounds like a m- might actually be a neat game. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something that was ever released? Is it available online? Uh, yeah, it's available on itch.io on my friend's page. Excellent. There'll be a link to that in the show notes at polygamer.net. Uh, speaking of games, so y- libraries were one of your first topics, but according to your Twitter and itch.io profile, you make games about sincerity, weirdness, and beautiful men. How did you just settle on those topics? <laughs> I mean, those are all true things. Um I'm very into kind of taking a concept and playing it for all it's worth, you know, kind of really considering every aspect of one little topic that someone might not have thought of, you know, it's execution in the real world, you know, taking an idea for all it's worth, not making any excuses for it, that kind of thing. And also, I think that it is important to make games about beautiful men. So there you go. I gotta say, I loved your game, The Leggy Blonde, especially the writing. This line in particular stuck out with me, and I, I had to write it down. The Leggy Blonde is so far out of your league that even if you were together, the cashier at the supermarket would put a divider between your groceries. I love that line. <laughs> it's, it's a fun one. <laughs> now, this is a Twine game that I was playing. Are most of your games made in Twine? So far, everything I've made by myself has been in Twine. Um... I've worked in, you know, RenPy and I think in some other engines a little bit, but for right now, you know, most of my little games are in Twine. How did you settle on that for your text adventures as opposed to, say, Inform? Well, first of all, I don't know what that other one is, so that's partially why. Um, <laughs> and this because I kind of had heard about Twine, and um, I found Twine 2 specifically to be very user-friendly, so I was able to get that out 
you can stuff that out pretty quickly. And I found it fairly easy to understand. Twine One is a different story. I, I battle with Twine One regularly and its lack of documentation. <laughs> yeah, I chatted on this show last summer with Abigail Kaufman about Twine versus Inform. Inform is more used for actual like text parser adventures, like type, where you type go north, get axe, stuff like that. Uh, those games tend to be a little bit more complicated, sometimes a little bit less yeah. narrative-driven. Yeah, I've never been a text parser game fan, um, just because I never know what to type. And so I'm I'm kind of very about making text adventures for people who don't like text adventures, like myself. Um, a lot of times I just have a difficulty imagining what's going on without any visual aspect to interactive fiction. And so what I like to do is try to make interactive fiction more accessible and more easy to read and with more of a visual appeal than a lot of the stuff that I've found. Um, that's not, not to diss on interactive fiction as a genre. I just personally have trouble with, you know, the spatial issues of imagining, uh, you're in a four-sided room, go north. Certainly no disrespect intended. You're just making games for yourself. You are your first and primary player. Yep. <laughs> now, speaking of having a visual component, one of the titles I introduced you w- with was Artist. So you are also an artist in the game space? Uh, I try to be. I am not. I'm mostly a writer by trade, and that's kind of my main thing. Um, art is something that I have developed a little bit on the side. You know, I wouldn't, you know, call myself a capital A artist. That's what I do all the time. But I like the ability to be able to draw what I'm thinking of and to have a distinct visual design for what I want to do, and to not, you know, have to rely on outside materials. Um, Though I I think it is eventually going to get to the point where if I want to make something really polished, I'm going to have to, you know, work with with other people at that point. Yeah, it's nice to be able to have all those skills in house and not have to go back and forth with somebody, wait for them to get you the assets you need. If you can just whip something out yourself, that's that much more efficient. But as you said, there are certainly limitations to that too. Yeah. So who have you worked with before? I mostly just worked with my friends. Um, I've, you know, two very close friends who I've worked in game jams with. Um, other than that, I have not done a lot of collaboration with other people. It's mostly just me because I feel like I don't have the resources to support other other people to, you know, pay them or even to, you know, do anything else really with with my work. And that's something I we really want to work on in the future to find more people who I can collaborate and compensate for their work. If you were to collaborate, the strength that you would bring to the table, that would be the writing? Oh, the writing, you know, maybe the kind of whole narrative design or creative design of the game, depending. And how do you recommend people go finding people to collaborate with? I know that's something you said you want to do and you've done game jams, but are there like online game dev communities that you're a part of? Um, not thus far, you know, besides just having a Twitter account. Um, yeah, that's something that I also struggle with this, you know, no, I think it's just a matter of knowing people most of the time and to, you know, easily be able to kind of share what you're working on and being open about that exchange of ideas. Yeah, it's very important to find people you can bounce ideas off, uh, people who can give you feedback and Ideally, a community that's just receptive and supportive, not somebody who's going to tear you down like so many people on the internet do want to do. And we certainly know that can happen on Twitter. Yeah. How do you stay positive when you're on Twitter and you're putting those ideas out? Do people tend to be receptive? 
Um, I think it's it's more often that it's difficult to get, you know, hyper attention for your ideas. A lot of time on Twitter, I, you know, haven't gotten to the point where I've got tons of randos in my mentions or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm coming at it from a very different perspective, I think. I think a lot of the time, once you get to a certain point, you probably just need to have an outlet where you can kind of shoot off without having to think about who's going to be reading your messages, who's going to be coming at you for whatever you've said. Like, like at some point, I think everyone needs like a private Twitter to go to. Right, right. And one way to make yourself better known, of course, is to accept speaking engagements, which is how we were introduced at GamerX. Was that your first time at GamerX? It was my second time at GamerX and my first time speaking at any convention. Oh, wow. That must have been both exhilarating and terrifying. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) I'm really glad that you thought to do that because this is a topic that I haven't really seen represented at other events. This was my second GamerX East. I had gone to GamerX West once. And if this topic was discussed, I must have missed it because this was very enlightening. Yeah, I think it doesn't, it's something that people think about, you know, the representation of non-binary characters, but it's not, if you'll think about it, but it's not something that people really talk about in a way of how do we fix this or anything that people bring up beyond like, you know, complaining to their friends once or twice, why aren't their characters like this? Right. And I definitely want to talk a lot about non-binary characters. For those who aren't familiar with that topic, let's uh, ease our way in with some familiar topics. For example, even in your own slides, you showed how there seems to be more representation of LGBT characters in video game narratives and fictions nowadays. Why do you think that we are finally getting to that point where there's more inclusivity and more representation? I think that's there's like a number of reasons for that. Um, Obviously, I don't have any hard facts, but I think that, you know, the fact that making games is a lot, you know, it's a lot more, the barrier is a lot, you know, further down, like, you know, more or less anyone can do it if they put in enough work. Um, There's also higher awareness of, you know, LGBT groups in the media. So even larger companies are, you know, have that in the cultural consciousness. They're thinking about doing that. You know, they're thinking about that, that particular audience and also, you know, sometimes LGBT people, you know, they have these opportunities so they can actually work at these big companies. So it's not just indie hobbyists, you know, sitting in their rooms making this stuff. It's, you know, full-time employees making this stuff as well. Um, so I think it's a mix of, of a lot of things, you know, but mostly increased communication about everything. That's very true, especially the increased access to tools, which is great for indie developers. But as you touched upon, AAA developers are also improving representation in their games. We saw in your slides games like Dragon Age or Mass Effect, Transistor, Life is Strange, some of these games I've played and have a diverse character. Do you find that these casts tend to be fairly authentic? I think that, you know, it kind of depends on who you're asking. You know, at some point, it's always going to be, you know, authenticity is always hard to to judge or to gauge. I think, you know, maybe it's always going to be difficult unless it's like a super autobiographical, you know, thing with lots of personal details, it's always going to be a little difficult to achieve ultimate authenticity. But yeah, I think that a lot of these, it's really, I focus a lot more on kind of how much respect that these characters are given by the narrative and how much, I guess, you know, there we have sincerity again goes into these characters rather than authenticity, because that's a very difficult thing to gauge. Hmm. I'd never really thought about that distinction between sincerity 
and authenticity. For example, in Life is Strange, which is about two teenage girls, it is very obviously it's very obvious from the dialogue and the script that this is what a bunch of 40-year-old guys think teenage girls talk like. Yeah, pretty much. You know, like A for effort, but I don't think a lot of teen girls are going to say, oh, that's just what we sound like. Yeah, I mean, I think that when people play, you know, this game, they probably, a lot of, you know, women playing this game probably did find, you know, bits of, you know, truth to their lives and authenticity and things like that. But like as a whole, that's about the meaning created between the player and the story and, and the game rather than, you know, anything that was deliberately created on the writing side. And I think that happens with like all media all the time. And it's it's a pretty great effect. You mean how the audience is able to synthesize and internalize the content and come to their own meaning about the story? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, in some cases, it's just, you know, grabbing what is good and what you can get from from you know this work and then running away and taking it for yourself and that that happens a lot with me especially lgbt media why especially lgbt media because i think a lot of the time in works there are you know depictions of characters that we, we wish were better but are not necessarily and so a lot of the times you know, you're very conflicted you know you're like this character is good you know this character is me, this this character is whatever, I want to like them. But, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't get what they deserved. So I'm going to run away and take them for myself and imagine them in a better way, in a better world. Is that how we can explain Babadook? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Babadook is, is kind of weird, um, because the actual movie is not about being gay at all. But it, so like the gay Babadook meme kind of emerged from something that like a conclusion that you can't reasonably get from the film. Um, it's still a very fun meme. <laughs> so you don't object to it? No. <laughs> I haven't actually seen the movie. I am aware of and appreciate the meme. Do, should I go back and actually watch the movie, or would I just be disappointed by the lack of representation in it? You might be you know, a little weirded out, because the movie itself... Like when I had watched the movie, I expected it to be kind of very campy or, or maybe a little silly, like a typical monster movie. But it's actually like a very serious movie about like child abuse and like the resentment like a mother can have towards her child. And it was like very intense. Wow, that does not sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. I liked it a lot because it's a subject that isn't you know touched upon a whole lot in in most media I've seen, but. It was also like, oh, we're making a meme about about this serious movie about, you know, you know raising a child. You're cool, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I will add it to my list then. So we talked a little bit about LGBT representation in games, but those four letters omit a lot of other different sexual orientations and gender identities, especially in the context of this podcast, non-binary, uh, which can include, if I understand correctly, genderqueer, agender, bigender, gender fluid, demi-boy, demi-girl. Could you help our listeners and me understand what this umbrella means? I mean, I kind of use the umbrella LGBT like with the kind of implication that it's including everything that's relevant to the conversation. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's very difficult to you know, name every single thing I'm talking about, unless it's something really specific that I'm talking about. And that's, you know, kind of a matter of personal taste, with, you know, using that rather than queer. Um, I just prefer to use LGBT. Um, and for non-binary, you do get a little bit of, of discussion over what exactly is under this umbrella and what's under that umbrella. 
for the purpose of my presentation, I used non-binary because it would have been difficult to bring everything else that was slightly different up. There's a discussion of whether being agender counts as non-binary because you're not, you know, you don't have anything to do with the binary when you're agender. You don't have a gender at all. You know, it's it's all those sorts of things. But for the purposes of my presentation, that's what I chose to do. Okay, so what is non-binary? Uh, well, yeah, is something that you can ask a lot of people, and I'm sure they would say something different. Um, to me, it's you know to have a gender identity that is does not fit as either solely um, being a man or a woman. It can be somewhere in between, or you know, a mix of of them, or kind of one of them, but not really, or just like not at all, or you know, tons of different things. It's very you know, it's very a, a personal thing a lot of the time, and it's, there's a lot of untreaded ground just because it's not something that a lot of people have put into words until, you know, I guess fairly recently. So is this operating on the idea that not only is sexual identity a spectrum, but so is gender identity, and you can be not just solely male or female or man or woman, but somewhere on the spectrum, maybe leaning toward one or the other, but still having aspects of the other? Yep, you can you can get away. That's illegal. You can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Okay. <laughs> what about some of these other terms if they're pertinent, like uh, demi boy or demi girl? I'm not sure how actually current demi boy or girl is. I have not heard that many people using them in recent years. Um, but it's just you know the kind of the concept of being sort of aligned with one gender, but not really. Like you are a woman, but also not really, or you know, or maybe that's no, not in those specific words. Um, you know, it's it's always really depends on it's always a very personal kind of emotional thing to have, you know, to describe your own gender identity and how that makes you feel and things like that. So I'm you know, hesitant to say like this is this all the time. But that's really like a lot about feeling a connection to, you know, one part of the binary, but not being completely 100 percent that way. Because I know some members here in Boston of the asexual community, and I've heard from them terms like gray romantic, demi-romantic, gray asexuality, demi-sexuality. Uh, but again, those seems to, that seems to refer more to your sexual orientation, which is different from your gender identity. And I, all the time, I almost think of it as sort of like three different scales, you know, who you're attracted to, what your gender identity is, and, you know, how much interested in your relationship or sex are you. Like those are kind of three different, you know, color picker tools, you know, the big spectrum of big box of color, like in Photoshop. Wow, that that is actually super helpful. I've never thought of it in those three discrete buckets and how they can, each one of them is itself on a scale and then they can combine, like you said, RGB into a whole number of different combinations. Yep, that's how I like to think about it. I think that's how I'll be thinking about it from now on. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So in terms of uh, video games, have there been non-binary characters in games and I just haven't noticed? Possibly, um, thanks to weird translation efforts. Like a lot of the time you get the most like, kind of discourse about a character's gender in a game that was originally in Japanese and has been translated to English because of how they use pronouns in, in Japanese. Like I don't speak Japanese, so I'm not an expert on this, from, but from... What I understand, pronouns are gender pronouns are much less common in the Japanese language. They don't work the same like they do here. And of course, there's also the question of how, in languages like Japanese or or French or anything like that, it's 
the way you gender yourself as compared to other people are very different than they are in English. So a lot of times it's just unclear, you know, a character who might reasonably have been referred to in a completely gender neutral way in Japanese or whatever other language, they're going to make that, you know, an executive decision that might be uninformed when they bring it and translate it into English. And that character might suddenly be a dude when it was actually completely up in the air in Japanese. I wonder how much of that is language and how much of it is culture. Because I remember, even when I was a kid, certain Super Nintendo games that were not translated from Japanese to the Super Nintendo, supposedly because they had uh, queer characters or non-binary or asexual or whatever. And that was not considered appropriate in the United States at that time. Maybe it was in Japan. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it. You know, it's always very difficult to understand these things fully if you are not from that that culture or raised within that culture. So, you know, it's hard for me to say, you know, this is okay over there and this isn't okay over here. Um, but there definitely are different standards and different ways of thinking about things and, you know, different things that are, you know, considered appropriate to, to publish and how they're viewed. So who are some non-binary characters in games? I think you may have mentioned a few in your presentation. Yeah, I did. Um... Now I might have to go look that up, but um, they, there are not a lot of like 100% confirmed, you know, the, the character has discussed it, you know, they have brought it up, I am a non-binary person, or I am not a man or a woman, or whatever like that. There aren't a lot of 100% confirmed characters like that. There are in more recent games. I'm looking up my PowerPoint to see what I wrote. <laughs> So in my slide, I had four main examples in my PowerPoint. Um, I had Napstable from Undertale, who is consistently referred to as a they throughout the entire game. Um, and in Undertale, it's you know very it's very good, nice because the the kind of the pronouns used in the narration are like a very reliable guide to what's really like you know what how the characters are and how they identify. Like you know that you know the they know what they're talking about, and you know that there's not any translation errors, you know, that that's just canonical how they are. And I had, the other characters I had were Leon from Umi, the Umineko series, um, Six from the upcoming visual novel Date or Die, and Alex Cyprin from A Story of Fate's Kiss, which I believe is a uh, mobile dating sim app. Interesting that you mentioned Date or Die, because the creator was on another panel I saw where they talked about how... Japanese anime that they watched as kids helped them identify their own gender identity. Yeah, I think I was at that panel too. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great panel. It was it was it was very fun. Yeah, I remember, you know, I was at the panel and thinking, hey, whoa, how did you know, how did I kind of synthesize everything into, you know, my future work and this it's a very big, fun topic. Yeah, I'd love to have somebody from that panel on this podcast next to talk about those topics. You also mentioned some characters that I think their gender is either unknown or irrelevant, like, for example, Kirby? Uh, yeah, well, with Kirby, Kirby is kind of in my other category of, like, this character should not really reasonably have you be assigned a gender, but, you know, they are for whatever reason, because Kirby is characterized as being masculine, um, even though, to my knowledge, Kirby is just like a pink puffball and, like, barely speaks anyway to kind of confirm this this identity and then you know Kirby's seem to be a species as well so like what's up with that um 
I'm not like an expert on Kirby lore, so I can't say for <laughs> sure if it's, you know, the greatest scam of all time that Kirby is a dude. Yeah, I don't think we've ever seen Kirby go on a date. We've never seen Kirby reproduce, so we don't know how any of these things happen or matter. Yeah, Kirby is, is very silent most of the time, so we haven't gotten a statement from, from Kirby themselves, but <laughs> I think it's a little silly that we have to, to gender Kirby. I mean, maybe it's, you know that one specific Kirby could be a dude, but I'm skeptical. Or maybe we can just put one, take one Kirby, put a bow on it, like Anir Sarkeesian says. That's how you create a female character, like Miss <laughs> Pac-Man. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like Yoshi and all that. Like, first of all, you know, is it all, is that one green Yoshi the same Yoshi every time? You know, does Yoshi have like a name besides their species? It's all, it's, it gets very weird once you think about it. <laughs> so if Kirby doesn't need to be having a gender or sexual orientation or identity, is it important that other characters do? I mean, because we mostly see binary characters in games. We don't see a lot of non-binary characters, especially in comparison. Is gender important to have in games? I think it is a little bit useless to try and get rid of gender entirely. I think it's something we're going to have, and it's something that is useful to work within the confines of. Um, in my presentation, I talked a lot about gender schemas, and that's, you know, these ideas that we have about men or women are turn out to be very useful for creating characters. So I think it would be unwise or maybe unthinkable of to eliminate gendered characters, but I do think people kind of need to realize that making a non-binary character is not as hard as they might think. You had said how the ideas we have about men and women can be helpful in creating a character. I may have missed the point of that exercise. I thought you were trying to help us realize our own biases and stereotypes. I am trying to do that as well. Um, but like speaking from like a writer point of view, it's like an easy, quick way to use you know, a gender schema or, you know, our ideas about men or women. It's just, a, you know, a quick, easy way to do that and make a totally new character that's not necessarily a stereotype, but like something interesting that we haven't seen before. You know, it's an easy tool to do that. And, you know, a lot of people find personal meaning from exploring binary gender. So I think it's, you know, still something that can be good and, you know, with the right amount of so thought and sincerity behind it. Since society gives us a lot more of these tropes or archetypes to work with in the binary context, does that actually mean that non-binary characters are harder to write? Not necessarily. I think that like a big part of my presentation was um, kind of, you know, getting, helping everyone to realize that most of our archetypes are not as gendered as we think they are. They're are a lot of, you know, non-gendered concepts out there that have nothing to do with the experience of being a man or a woman. And you might have to work a little harder to get your image of that character out there. Um, but it's certainly not, I guess, much of a barrier to making a character as people think that there is. Once they make the character, will that lack of archetype or stereotype make it more difficult for the audience to relate to the character? I mean, it probably depends on the type of character, because if, you know, just because you're not working with a gendered archetype doesn't mean you're not working with any archetypes at all. Um, you can still get a lot of very, like, relatable, you know, kind of emotional stuff in there that people might know and love. You know, the kind of the archetype of, say, like, you know, the, the overzealous, you know, detective type, like, that is not exclusively a male or a female trope. That's just an idea of 
you know, this this person who you know, is a little too gung-ho about investigating, you, you can apply that to anybody and people will recognize that trope. Like say, well, specifically say like a film noir detective that has nothing, you know, inherently to do with being a dude or with being a woman, but it's still a recognizable idea. Sure. Or let's say that you want to write a character who's a parent. Yeah. You know, that parent doesn't need to fall into a gender bucket because the identifying characteristic about that character is their relationship to their child. Yeah. Again, anyone is a parent. I especially liked your example of having us think about a male motorcyclist and we thought about what that looks like and then a female motorcyclist. And then I think your third example was a vampire motorcyclist. Uh, well, first it was um, an agender motorcyclist to say like, oh, you know, you don't think you don't have an image with that. Um, but then, yeah, my example for a, a non-gendered archetype was a vampire on a motorcycle. Right. And that is a stereotype, a trope that we can rely on to quickly create a character and for the audience to identify with that character without gender even coming into play. Yeah, that's that's the big idea. Right, because we all have ideas about what a vampire is. There are things that come with being a vampire regardless of your gender. Yeah. Have you included non-binary characters in your games? Uh, to some extent. I have Yeah, I have a lot of things kind of planned that are you know, in the pipes. Um, right now, I, I think mostly in what I have out currently are, are games where I, left, I wanted to leave the protagonist role very up to you know, interpretation and in that way, they're kind of non-gendered. I don't have any, I don't think I have any explicitly non-binary characters in what I have out right now, but it's certainly, you know, in the plans. Do you think we were talking earlier about authenticity, sincerity? Is it better for non-binary characters to be written by non-binary writers or to have more non-binary people in game development in order to improve that representation? I think, you know, both is best if we can have it. I think that yeah, obviously a a you know a, a binary writer is gonna they're not gonna want to write the like you know the deep experience of you know of identifying this way or anything like that. But you know, I've always been a big fan of kind of you know genre fiction with characters who don't normally get in get to be in genre fiction, and so in that way, you know, a binary writer could you know absolutely write a non-binary character into you know a superhero story or you know, a rom-com or anything like that. So if I, as a binary individual, want to write a non-binary character, I would hope that I wouldn't just go it on my own and say, oh, I know exactly what non-binary characters would say or do in this situation. Do you recommend that, like, they hire a consultant? Um, if you have the means to do so, I guess, and you, if you're really worried about that, yeah, I would say, you know, kind of doing your research is always good, um, being very observant, it always helps to know people to, you know, kind of pull not, you know, direct, you know, personality or character things from but just pull to pull little actions from to note down, you know, all the little everyday things that let you know that someone is, you know, identifies this way or that way or anything like that. You know, it always helps to be very observant about these things. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you're writing you know, something that really has nothing to do with a character's gender or sexuality. You know, you only need to mention it like a couple of times or, or where it's relevant. Um, it's not, 
you know, generally about their their gender journey in that way. Yeah, I especially liked the example you gave of Stardew Valley, where I think I haven't actually played the game myself. It asks you to choose from a binary character. I've not played it either, but that is from what I understand. Yes, you have to choose either male or female, and there's like no difference whatsoever. Exactly, because why should either one matter when the stereotype you're occupying in that game is farmer? Yeah, like you're a farmer. That's your gender. Right. You can be a vampire. You can be a motorcyclist. You can be a farmer, and gender doesn't come into play. Yeah. So it's just a little bit weird that, especially because people don't really talk about that. And yeah, I hear all sorts of great things about Stardew Valley, but I really haven't, you know, heard any discussions about, you know, how kind of pointless it is that they make you choose. If gender doesn't matter in that game and in that context, when does gender matter? I think whenever you have a kind of a self-insert protagonist or, you know, a silent protagonist. With self-insert creatable protagonists especially, I think it's, you know, nice and important to have that option at least. And I think in a game like Stardew Valley where, as far as I know, like your character doesn't even like talk or, you know, like their personality isn't a big part of the game. Like I feel like having a gender option is maybe a little bit pointless in a game like, I think, you know, kind of a lot like Bioware RPGs and games like those where, like, it's not just self-inserting. Yeah, it can be, but you're also building your own character with their own identity. I think that, you know, adding those those inclusive options on would be a better option than just eliminating the gender entirely because it gets you more options to create a character. I think you just addressed one of the questions I walked away from your panel with, which is if we do eliminate gender in games then how do we improve representation of non-binary characters? Yeah, I think it's, you know, often a case-by-case basis or um, kind of thinking of what point does gendering this character serve? What does that say about, what am I trying to say about gender? Like, does this character, you know, does that add to our development of the character? Is this character, are you meant to self-insert on this character? Are you just kind of meant to, you know, watch them run around. Are, are you meant to actually create your own character and roleplay as them? There's a lot of questions you need to ask about that. And in, in my games, um, you know, such as in um, my Leaky Blonde game, I purposely made, I gave the protagonist a gender-neutral name and because I figured it's not relevant, um, you know, what, char- what gender this character is. I'm not trying to build this person's character necessarily it's about the emotions of you know kind of being bored and lonely at work or you know in any kind of dull situation it's about being you know bored enough and then you know relieving your time fantasizing about this this dude yeah i think that was the same way that depression quest was built when i played depression quest i noticed that it really could go either way. There was no defining pronouns, if I recall, about your relationship with the person. That I noticed that as well in Leggy Blonde. I enjoy, really enjoyed the writing in both of those games. Thank you. Um, yeah, like I, like I'm kind of very big on you know non-gender protagonist. Unless I, if that's kind of, if I'm meaning to focus more on you know this some other character or subject in the game, or if it's you know, all kind of narrated in like the second person. I think it's just easier to avoid gendered symbols to maybe let people self-insert or just kind of focus on the feelings or focus on the dudes. But, you know, if I was writing a more, you know, scripted 
um, game where the protagonist plays a bigger role, I would definitely want to be more explicit about what their gender is exactly. You mentioned Bioware games specifically. Are you referring to Mass Effect and how it lets you choose either of the binary genders for Commander Shepard? I was thinking more of Dragon Age Inquisition specifically because I've been playing that a lot lately. Uh. Um, But yeah, like, you know, Mass Effect is the same thing. And, you know, this is something I talk about in the presentation. It's very weird that, um, you know, Commander Shepard and these characters like that, um, you know, they don't have a canon gender because you can choose, you know, male or female. So, you know, Commander Shepard is kind of this genderless figure who's never not gendered. And that's like a bit of video game weirdness that you always encounter with the, you know, customizable protagonist thing. How so? In that it limits you to the binary? Um, in that you get characters who are not canonically a man or a woman, but they also are. And they're not a true form representation, but they occupy a strange space in between that where you, know, you can bring up... You know, you can say, like, oh, you know, Commander Shepard is, you know, such a great character or, you know, my Shepard did this and someone will be imagining a woman and, you know, I'll be imagining a dude or, you know, the other way around. So what would be less weird? What's another way to make a Mass Effect game? I don't think that the weirdness is bad necessarily. I think it's something very unique and cool that games have. And that's kind of what makes me think that games can go a lot further in representing different types of genders is because of the ways that stories and games are told. You know, in no other medium can a character's gender really change each time you read the story and the story will be exactly the same. Um, you know, it makes you think a lot about the possibilities with that. Um, you know, but again, I would say that, you know, it is it probably would be good that if in some game like Mass Effect they give you some more inclusive options to create a character who is not within the binary or anything like that i think you know that just adds for more more role-playing options and for more self-inserting options and you know self-inserting options is a really big topic in itself how so it's because there are you know if if the aim of a character creator is to let you know nearly you know a a really good subset of the players self-insert you know, they these character creators don't don't always have the assets for creating that kind of character that can represent most players. And you know, this is pretty simple stuff as well. Like in um in Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, like I wanted to make a character who looked like myself, but there weren't any curly hair options. So like I had to kind of find the next best thing. And you know, of course, that's not even considering how there aren't a lot of um you know hairstyles for black characters or like it's hard to make a monolid for making an Asian character or anything like that. So all these different options and character creators, it, you know, like it gets very limited at a certain point and is not as good for self-inserting as, as they could be in more ways than just gender. But given that in reality, the permutations and combinations for an actual person are almost infinite, how would they ever represent everybody in uh, the discrete finite space of a video game? I don't think they have to represent every single person, but I, I think that, you know, if we're, you know, working on character creators and really focusing on that, I think, you know, we need to be able to create more or let more people self-insert than, than they can now, you know, just having, I guess, you know, a lot of this is technical limitations and I, you know, am not familiar with the process of character creation in, in that way. So, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, have actually, you know, having the ability to let your, 
you know, let you know, the character creator, let the player create a monolid on their characters with their character's eyes or, you know, add, you know, a couple Afro textured hair uh, meshes to to the game, you know, adds a lot more, you know, points of um, you know, assets that, that people can use. And it doesn't represent every single person. That's obviously impossible, but it lets more people do it than could previously before. And I think that's what all we can really focus on right now. So, for example, in Mass Effect, instead of letting the player choose between two binary characters or giving them a finite number of other options on the non-binary scale, for example, they could just have a character creator and let you choose whatever combination of facets and aspects that they want and let that be your Commander Shepard. That's sort of what they do already. I mean, there is a you know character creator where you can mold the face a little bit and change the hair. Um yeah, like having more more gender options would be you know pretty cool. I think people, you know, players will actually get overwhelmed if there are too many options. But you know, by having a decent amount or more than we have right now would be would be pretty good in you know a big role playing game. I'm sure you remember when Ubisoft said that one of the reasons there were no female assassins in Assassin's Creed is because the model was too difficult to create, or it would be twice as much work as creating male models. Yeah. And I would hate to hear that excuse be used again to say, oh, we can't do Mass Effect non-binary because it's hard enough to have two models. What if we had three, four, or five? Yeah, I think it's something that people need to um, you know, take into consideration from you know, kind of the start of the project, obviously. Like, yeah, I've heard that the, reason, the real thing that they meant when you know, Ubisoft talked about the animation was just that like, at that point in the project, they, they couldn't do it. But if they had planned for it from the beginning, they totally could have done it. Um, so these things, you know, need to be thought about from the very inception of, of each project, I think. Absolutely. I'm sure if you've already gone through the mocap studio and you have your assets, you're not going to go back to the mocap studio and start over. You need to have already done it right the first time. Yeah, you need to plan for these things. And, you know, and also with, with that's partially, I think, why games feel a little bit behind in the representation um, as compared to maybe books or webcomics or something like that. Because, you know, a webcomic updates very, very quickly. Um, they, the process is comparatively much quicker than making an entire game. Video games take a long time to make. Right. Webcomics can iterate very quickly, whereas video games, especially in the case of Duke Nukem, can take like 15 years. Yep. You know, especially AAA games, you know, they, I feel like they end up being a little couple years behind the, the curve with these things because they just, you know, can't update once they have planned for everything three years ago. We talked a little bit about how, despite those limitations, games are getting better at representation due to improved access to tools and increased popular awareness and media representation. Does that apply to non-binary as well? Do you see things getting better? I think I do. Um... I think until people kind of start, you know, realizing that it's easier to write non-binary characters than they think it is, um, I think we're not going to get as much stuff. And so I don't know where the push for that really begins besides, you know, people like me promoting the idea that, like, you know, it's easier than you think or, you know, just, you know, as kind of culture develops, having more examples for people to pull from. Or having more prominent non-binary people in, in visible spaces, like all these things will contribute to people feeling more confident about writing these characters, or you know, feel that there's you to know that there's a demand for these types of characters, rather than thinking 
not knowing about it or thinking like, oh, that would be kind of difficult or anything like that. Right. You mentioned not knowing about it. I think that might be a bigger challenge than feeling that they can't write about it or thinking that it's too hard because I don't know how many of our game creators are consciously choosing not to write non-binary characters as opposed to not even considering it in the first place. Yeah, I like a lot of people, obviously there are people who don't even know that it's a thing. Um, then there are people who they know it's a thing, but they don't really know what it means. You know, conceptually knowing that you can be neither 100% a man or 100% a woman, you know, there's a difference between conceptually knowing what that is and then being able to apply that that point to like a real person. And obviously, you know, the first step a lot of the time is just knowing somebody who is um but, you know, that's a, a big step and not everyone knows everybody. So It occurs to me that video games are behind other media and representation. I feel like we see a lot more LGBT characters in movies and TV shows. As far as looking for examples, are there other media you recommend people consume in order to get examples of non-binary characters that may not be in video games? I, I'm trying to think. Besides the anime we already talked about. <laughs> Yeah, there's, you know, there's anime stuff, obviously. Um, they, I hear that there are quite a lot of YA books that go into this stuff. I can't think of any in specific, but um, you know, young adult novels are always kind of try to be very up to date with these things and inclusive. Um, so I hear that there are a lot of kind of good points with that. And then web comics, um, there are lots of different examples of, you know, non-binary characters and everything like that. I don't, I'm not a huge webcomic reader, but there, and there are a couple examples out there. The webcomics I can think of is, I think the webcomic Quicksilver has a non-binary protagonist, and I'm not sure if Cucumber Quest actually has any confirmed characters or not, but there, you know, there's one or two characters who are kind of ambiguous that would be interesting to check out. Excellent. Thank you. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Cool. So we've talked about a lot of different topics in the last hour, a lot of stuff that I'm personally ignorant about. I may not know what questions to ask. Is there anything we haven't talked about that we should have? Yeah, I guess there's still, you know, the space to kind of harp on the point of, you know, it's it's easier to write non-binary characters than you think it is. But there's kind of only so much you can talk about that with without giving, you know, really concrete examples. Yeah, so what I, you know, would like is to you know, dispel ideas or hesitation or fear about what it might be like to to include these types of characters and, you know, what would I have to do or, you know, am I qualified to do this or what does this character act like or look like? Um, you know, I think that it all begins with knowing who to talk to and knowing where to start and, you know, just being very observant and that's, you know, how you how you get started with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, being observant, being transparent, being curious, and being willing to learn from your mistakes, I think are all very important qualities, especially in this context. Yeah, for sure. I think that like a lot of people are, it's always kind of the age-old um, you know, um, dilemma of how do I show that this character is you know, gay or trans or you know, whatever, Without, you know, being too, you know, you want to be subtle, but you want to be not, you know, you want people to know, like, you don't want it to be up for a debate. Um, so it's always very difficult to figure out how to, like, mention that without, you know, a character just, you know, saying out of the blue, like, hey, I'm gay. And, you know, sometimes that does happen in real life. 
Yeah, I think the key is to just focus on, you know, what ha- this is where, again, you know, it helps to know people. Like you think about in, in real life, like, how do you know, like, how do you find out that someone is, has this as part of their identity or anything like that? Like you, you know, I need to think back of, you know, times where you've been, you know, in a room with, you know, people who, who were LGBT or anything like that. And think about how, how you might've, how they might've acted or how you have found out that people in your life were you know gay or trans or anything like that and you know moving from just like the tiny little actions or habits that they might have and figuring out how you can in- install that into what story you're trying to tell that all sounds like wonderful advice i think it's advice that not only can we learn from but also i think an early version of one of the dragon age games did not learn from that i think there was a transgender character who just like one of their first lines of dialogue was i'm transgender yeah, I think that was that was a uh, Mass Effect uh, Andromeda. I, I think. Oh, like you're that. right. You're absolutely right. It was Bioware, but it was not Dragon Age. It was Mass Effect, and I think they even dead named themselves. I think so, uh, which is very very awkward. When David Gator was at Bioware, he did some great writing on the Dragon Age games. I think you can tell that Andromeda came out after he left. Yeah, um, and yeah, Mass Effect has always had like a different vibe to it than Dragon Age with that stuff as well. Yeah, like some, it's difficult to like if you're trying to kind of write your characters in a world with where you know there's no bigotry, there's no you know big threat of homophobia or transphobia or anything like that, which you know a lot of people choose to do, and I kind of like to do that just because I think it's that's where you get the really good stories that have not been told. Um, if you're not focusing on that, it's you know it's difficult to imagine like how would people talk about themselves in a world with no you know, fear of bigotry or repercussions. Because a lot of the time you find out that someone is LGBT by how they react to, you know, to a threat or, you know, react to kind of the world that we live in. Um, so you, it is kind of up for debate how people would talk about themselves in a world like that. But, you know, I think that the key for that is taking what you can from like, you know, a space like Gamer X where it's very open and you know, people generally, you know, are not afraid to be who they are. You know, taking a, what you see in a space like that and imagine, like, what if the whole world was that way? You know, how the way people are talking about themselves here is going to be, you know, more or less how people are going to talk about themselves in in this, you know, particular world. And I think that's, you know, an important thing to kind of, you know, keep yourself to keep yourself grounded on when writing dialogue like that. Sure. Even in a fantasy world, you can still have realistic characters. Yeah, you still have people who are going to talk about their identities or their sexualities because you know, even in a fantasy world where you know there's no homophobia, people still you're still not going to know if everybody is gay. Um, you're still not you know not everyone's going to meet or know that they themselves are. You know, not everyone is going to be aware of their gender identity from day one. You know, these things would still happen in in the fantasy world, and that was something I always found that I found a little weird about um Dream Daddy. Have you played that game? No, I've not. Well, that's you know the the kind of semi infamous dating sim where you know you're a single dad who's dating other single dads. Um, but what always struck me as a little weird is that there's never any conversation about, or never really any chance where time where the protagonist is wondering like, hey, is is this guy like into dudes? Like, it's never discussed. It just kind of, that just kind of happened. They don't talk about that. 
like I don't remember if they ever say like the word gay or bisexual in like the game. Um, so it's like a very kind of weird or you know, and I don't want to say unrealistic, but like I, that was the main thing that struck me as strange that this is a world you know without bigotry, but they still like aren't talking about it, which I think this would would not happen even in that world. I still like the game. The closest example I can think of is the new Star Trek Discovery show where there are two gay characters. The very first few times you see them interact, you don't know that they're gay or that they are a couple because they're acting in a professional context. One's an engineer, the other's a doctor. They're talking about their jobs because they're on the clock. And it's not until they actually clock out and go back to their quarters together that you're like, oh, they're a couple. And in that world, they don't have to worry about that because Star Trek is a universe where we have accepted all these aspects of people. And yet, they, in that particular context of the professional workplace, it just wasn't relevant. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes when you're working within that, that you know, kind of, you know, world space, it can be a little more difficult, you know, sometimes to recognize that a character is, is gay or, you know, LGBT. Just because, you know, we're kind of so used to seeing signs of, of bigotry as, like, evidence for for that. But, you know, that's where language, like, you know, seems like showing, you know, two characters in a clearly romantic context or, like, saying phrases like, you know, his husband, you know, her wife, that kind of thing are, you know, just normal language that you would apply to, you know, cis, hetero characters you are going to apply to, to, you know, trans or gay characters in something. And those are very powerful tools of normalization. Right, because at the end of the day, we're all just people. Yep. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. We've talked about so many things. I wish we could go on forever, but I th- <laughs> eventually we we have to get back to writing these games that we've talked about. Yep. So remind our listeners where they can find you online. Um, you can mostly find me online on on Twitter and itch.io. Um, so my Twitter is Wally S with two underscores between Wally and the S. I you know hope you're gonna link it below. Oh absolutely. And my itch.io page where my games are is Wally dash S dot itch dot IO. And I have right now I have two Twine games out and two global game gym games that are linked. And I'm working on a third Twine game that I'm hoping to get out this month about the feeling of being bored and lonely in the suburbs and you then you see a deer on the road and you know maybe you you start a relationship with like a random ghost who who lives on the street you know that kind of thing um and i have an in progress visual novel that i've been working on for what seems like forever but it's gonna it's gonna happen one day excellent be sure to let me know when those are out i'd love to take a look at them i will i will surely post about them everywhere <laughs> and i'll be happy to reach you well, wally thank you so much for your time this is very enlightening i appreciate it thank you for having me this has been polygamer a game bits production find more episodes read our blog or send feedback at polygamer.net uh,